The picture coming up on the screen behind me was taken on the 21st of July last year, almost exactly a year ago today. This was the moment when one of Britain's leading pediatricians, Dr. Richard Stevens, left the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital where he worked and without a word to family or colleagues simply disappeared. For all who knew him, his disappearance seemed hard to explain. He had a highly respected career, what seemed to be a good marriage, and three children who thought the world of him. Yet as the weeks and months followed, there was no further news. That was till the 6th of January this year, nearly six months after his mysterious disappearance, his family heard the news they didn't want to hear. The body of Richard Stevens had been uncovered in a secluded spot in the Lake District. Every year, over 200,000 men, women and children are reported missing in the UK. Like Richard Stevens, their whereabouts unknown, their homes deserted, their families abandoned. Most are missing by deliberate intention, and most either return or are found within 72 hours. But for every unresolved case, there is behind it a family who waits and wonders if their loved one will ever return. For them, the somber truth is that a loved one may neither wish to be found or ever return to their lives. Yet as tragic as this is, I want to direct you this morning to another heartbreaking list of missing people. A list which does not make the news, for it is known only to God. It includes the name of spiritual runaways who every year flee the nest, hoping for a better life without father and usually without his other children. God is not ignorant of their whereabouts. However, without forcing them to return or coercing them, he patiently waits and he compassionately calls. Millennia ago, God made such a call to an entire nation of prodigals, children of God who had wandered from him in their hearts. And God's cry to them, through the prophet Joel, can and should be repeated to prodigals today. Wherever you've wandered, whatever you've done, come home. Who knows, perhaps for you today, on the 18th of July, 2004, this is your day to return to the Lord. We return to our reading in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I encourage you to read along. There are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and it's page 912 in those Bibles. Joel isn't the easiest book to find. If you're looking in another Bible, it's probably around three quarters of the way through your Bible. 
as we turn to that, let's now, let's just pray for a moment. Father, help us to concentrate and focus. Help us to understand that this is your word, spoken to Israel long ago, but spoken today to us. Help us to hear what you are saying to us and help us to respond. And help me as I speak your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 12, Joel chapter 2. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. This is God's word. Some times in life are more important than others. Have you ever come to a moment in your life that you know is of crucial importance. A big year, a significant month, a key week, a decisive day, a life-changing moment or second, where you know that the choices you make now will alter your life direction forever. For Israel, God's message through his prophet Joel, arrived at a critical time. This is signaled in our very first verse, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord. It is not Israel, it is not Joel, who speaks of the significance of the moment. Notice, it is the Lord himself. He announces this key now moment in Israel's history. As we look to the rest of Joel's prophecy, we see some reasons why this moment was so significant. For one thing, the past had made the present imperative. What had just passed is described graphically by Joel at the beginning of his prophecy. Verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers. Clearly, unprecedented events had happened in Israel's history. And Joel describes specifically what these are in verse 4, which gives the whole backdrop to the letter. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. In other words, there had been a plague. In the near past, Israel had been invaded by a swarm of locusts. Now this isn't just a a biblical times thing. You may be aware that right now in Northern Africa, there's a a major situation with locust swarms in countries like Morocco and Algeria. They're even concerned that they might literally hop the Mediterranean to Spain. And the Spanish government are sending planes to help 
with the effort. Such ones do happen. Even so, some people have viewed these locusts in Joel as sort of metaphorical, that they represent something else, maybe an invading army. Personally, I think that these descriptions of the carnage caused by the plague have all the marks of genuine authenticity. The kind of results you would expect from a plague of locusts. I'm no expert on uh, locusts, but I'm told that the plagues can stretch for hundreds of kilometres. And within each square kilometre, you have normally at least 40 million locusts and as many as 80 million. I'd expect quite a lot of damage here. And as we look to the first chapter, verses 7 to 12, and verses 16 to 20, that's exactly what we see. Look at some of the things there. The vines have been laid to waste, the fig trees are ruined, the fields and their grains with it have been decimated, the ground is dry, there is a food shortage for both human beings and animals. It is all the feel of an actual event. Yet the most shocking revelation is yet to come. For as Joel's prophecy unravels, we not only get a picture of what has happened, but why it has happened. A sort of after-the-event explanation. Some of you might have heard the story this week about Prince Charles. A sort of backdated story from a few months ago about a, a near a plane accident that he was involved in. And as you would expect from the airlines, they didn't tell the passengers at the time the situation, but when they got safely onto the ground, they told them that in fact their plane had been very close to another plane. And so it is for Israel. They get a kind of after-the-event explanation. And it's not the explanation they probably expected. The locusts had not been just an unfortunate twist of fate, a chance turning of the wind. No, in fact, they had been divinely directed by the Lord and they're even described, as the children were reading to us, in chapter 2, verse 11, as the army of the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 25, the Lord himself describes them as my great army that I sent among you. Now here's a question. Why would God do such a thing to his own people? Why would he bring a, a plague of locusts upon them? This is exactly what he did, you remember, to the people of Egypt many years before. Why would the Lord do such a thing to his own children? In our life, why sometimes does God permit difficult times to come upon us? Well, we can't always know the answers for sure. But for Israel, the answer is clear. It is so that they might turn from their rebellious ways, stop and take notice of the Lord and cry out to him. This is a wake-up call for Israel. I don't know all of you today. As I look around, I probably know half of you. And even those of you that I do know, I can't honestly say that I know what's going in your life on a spiritual level. Who knows what kind of situations, difficulties, trials, struggles you're facing at the moment. I can tell you exactly why they're happening. But perhaps one reason 
that you're facing the trials that you are facing is that God's trying to get your attention, to get you to stop and listen. We just heard the news about our senior pastor. So disappointed for them. And sometimes you wonder, why do these kind of things happen? A couple of years ago, my own, my own mum had a really innocuous accident at her work. She was actually walking up some stairs and she broke her ankle in two places. Something in a second affected her, has affected her for the last two years. One thing I can say for sure was that her testimony was it helped her to slow down and focus on what God was saying to her. So Israel's past made the present moment critical, but also the future. In Israel's prophecy, there is a frequent looking forward to another day of judgment, what is called the day of the Lord. The past, is Joel, is a foretaste of an even greater judgment that is yet to come. The day of the Lord will be a day of salvation for God's people and a day of judgment for those who are God's enemies. And before this final day of reckoning, God chooses his moment to call his people. It's not the wanderer who chooses the moment, it's God. And into the present, into Israel's now, comes the word of the Lord. What will Israel's response be to God's word at this crucial time? If we've been wandering from God in our hearts, or sometime, what will our response be this morning? Joe says there should be nothing less than a complete turnaround. Look at how God calls Israel to respond to him in the rest of verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. What we see in these verses is that God is concerned with the heart. And just as we might be hooked up to our heart monitor, which looks for certain signs, so also the Lord examines his people and he looks for two conditions of the heart. The first thing God is looking for is a whole heart. This is only natural. Israel's problem was that they were half-hearted. They had divided loyalties and they didn't follow God wholeheartedly. They turned frequently to idols, other so-called gods from other nations. Think of this like a marriage. Imagine, you've committed yourself wholly to a husband or wife and they to you, but you soon discover that in their heart they are far from you. They are physically present, but emotionally absent. They're with you in person, but not in spirit. We might say, that would be terrible. And yet that's exactly what Israel was like in her marriage to God. Going through the motions, but miles away in their hearts. And that is what we are like when we do the same. We can be coming to church every week, singing the songs, bowing our heads for the prayers, even involved in service of some kind in church. And yet we can be miles away in our hearts. You may have stopped coming to church altogether. Maybe you've just started 
coming back. Maybe this is even your first day. But you don't have to have left church to have wandered from God in your heart. Israel, to outsiders, probably looked as if everything was going okay. They looked like God's people in God's place under God's rule. They were still in the land, still making sacrifices at the temple. And yet God, who can see into the heart, sees a different story. I was involved a few weeks ago with our youth group on what was interestingly called a chip shop challenge. I remember one of these from 10 years before. Uh, I'm not giving you the whole details at it, but I was up all night ill the previous one of these that I did. The whole concept's too hard to explain, but basically we broke up into teams and went around a number of different chip shops and we marked them, we sort of scored them. And it wasn't just marks for the food. You had to mark all sorts of externals. Like, for example, the ambience, the atmosphere of the shop, the quality of the packaging, the friendliness of the staff. In fact, after a while, you got quite picky about your chip shops. You started to figure it out as soon as you walked in. And there was this particular shop that we went into that seemed to have everything going for it. The staff were friendly. The ambience of the shop was just perfect. Even the packaging was nice. And our team left. We were expecting a fantastic bag of chips. And, well, it wasn't bottom, but it was second bottom on our list. In fact, the chips were undercooked, but we won't go into the whole story. You see, all the packaging can be in place. It looks good from the outside. But God says, I want your heart. Look at verse 13. Rend your heart, says the Lord, and not your garments. If I lived in Jewish culture and I was deeply upset about something, some terrible misfortune had come upon me, I would rend or, or tear my clothing. And this was an outward, external sign of something that was going on inwardly. But the Lord says, I'm tired of your external offerings. I'm tired of you rending your heart, doing all the outward things and not giving me your heart. God says, I don't want your shell if I can't have your soul. And perhaps God is saying to you this morning, give me your heart. The remedy is simple. Give God your whole heart. Just as you did when you first came to Christ and you trusted in Him as your rescuer and as your master. Complete trust. Full allegiance whole heart and yet paradoxically Joel adds also come to the Lord with a broken heart look at the second part of verse 12 in your Bible return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning note here that the past is not swept under the carpet it's not forgotten but it can be left behind only through the tears of repentance repentance is more than just a surface level sorry. Repentance is a deep and sorrowful recognition that we have wronged, above all, God. And it's a daily decision to turn to God and serve Him with our lives. It is to ask the question this morning, are we deeply contrite for wasted days, weeks, months, even years? Remember the story that Jesus told about two men who went up to the temple to pray 
One was a religious leader, a very pious man. The other was a tax collector, the kind of person that people look down on, a sort of notorious sinner. And the religious leader, he prayed to God and he told God how good he was, how awful this other fellow was. And the tax collector didn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't know, because it doesn't say it in the Bible, but I'm sure he, he wept. And that's the kind of person that God is looking for. The Bible tells us that the tax collector went home right with God. God is not looking for a pious heart, for a proud heart. He's looking for a penitent heart. Actually, this morning, can your heart take the shape God is looking for? Are you able to give God your whole heart and also come to him with that brokenness of heart that he desires? Perhaps today you're not even a Christian. You've never returned home to God for the very first time from sin and rebellion from your Creator. This is the same move you need to make. Well, we make a complete turnaround. I'm not expert in driving. In fact, uh, I'm still waiting to get started, but we'll go into that another time. But I'm told that two of the most difficult manoeuvres are the uh, reverse parking, probably the worst, and another one that's quite difficult is the three-point turn. Turning round always seems difficult. Reversing back up the road you've come never seems, seems simple, but it is possible. However, you might say, wait a minute, say I do turn around and come back home and knock on the door and get no answer. If I come back to God today, after all this time, after different things that I've done, will he accept me? And the answer to that, says Joel, lies in the character of God. And a character trend that we see throughout the Bible. I'm not a fan of talk shows. One type of show, though, that I do like is one of these reunion programs. You know, where they bring together separated family members. Some of them have been apart their whole lifetimes. And in some cases, one of the parties has made a, a terrible mistake. And you see them sweating anxiously. Will this family member accept me? Joel says, you don't need to be anxious because of what we know about the character of God. And he takes them right back to Mount Sinai where the law was given to Israel. When Joel describes God's character in verse 13 here, he's almost exactly quoting from Exodus 34 verse 6 where God is described as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And Joel, by bringing Sinai deliberately to memory here, it's saying a profound thing to the people of Israel. He's saying, God is still the same. You may have changed. You may have wandered. You may be different, hot and cold. But God's character remains constant. And by Joel's lifetime, this character of God had been preserved. Have you ever met someone and you haven't seen them for years, five years, ten years, and you go away saying, they're just exactly the same? especially good if it's in a, a positive way. You know, they're still so generous and kind and they remembered my name. Joe says God's like that. 
over ages, He is still the same. He's still gracious, longing to forgive His people. He's still compassionate. He really cares about His people's distress. He is still slow to anger. You know, despite everything Israel had done, God could have wiped them out. And instead, instead He had sent this warning shot across their bow. He's slow to anger. And He continues to abound in love. Despite everything Israel had done, no one loved them like God loved them. And Joel adds another thing that isn't mentioned in Exodus. God is willing to relent from sending calamity. Remember Moses, Israel, and the golden calf? The people had sinned greatly. God is giving the Ten Commandments and they're worshipping this idol. And the Lord in His righteous anger wants to destroy His people, wipe them out. And Moses pleads with the Lord. And you remember the story? The Lord relented of immediate judgment. Joel says, He's still that kind of God. If we truly repent, He longs to relent. But, we need to add a further stage to this trend. For it's not as though God's character was one way in the Old Testament, at the time of Joel, at the time of Mount Sinai, but is different in the New Testament. These characteristics of God were shown even more fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus simply exuded these qualities. He took them indeed to another level, a greater height, the height of a cross where he bled and died for our rebellion, our sin. Jesus takes our judgment on himself so that God might relent from sending calamity. God's character is still the same in the time of Christ, first century AD. And it continues into the 21st century. You know that great verse from Hebrews, Hebrews 13, verse 6, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, God's character remains unchanging. But, there is a word of warning to be added. For Joel says, while we should be confident of God's character should we return we should not play games with a sovereign God. I used to have a, a school teacher who had the nicest personality. So nice. But that didn't mean you should push it, you know. And occasionally in the year, maybe just once or twice, someone would push things a little bit too far. And Joel says, although God is slow to anger, we should not test his patience. If we are still God's enemies, we should not dare to sit on the fence a moment longer. Yes, we may believe that we are God's children, safe no matter what happens, how much we wonder. But Job says it is dangerous to presume. Look at verse 14. Yet who knows, he may turn and have pity. And so in conclusion, God says to us this morning, return. If you have been wandering from God and God has been speaking to you today, 
you can be sure that this is a critical time in your life. The past has been preparing you. The future, as it were, is rushing towards you. And today, this moment is the only moment we can guarantee that we can respond before a final day of accounting. Your response should be nothing less than a complete turnaround. It's very simple, but it's also very drastic. No half-heart, but complete commitment. Not perfection, but true repentance and a striving to please God. We'll be praying in a few moments. And between you and God, there's an opportunity to come back to Him today. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. And it's not that you've been wandering from God, you've been part of His household and you've fled the nest. You've never been part of that family. And again, God says to you today, turn around, come to me. We can do so with confidence on the basis of the character trend we see in God throughout the Bible. And remember this, what God offers you on return is nothing less than a relationship with him. Look at the very final words of verse 14 and the strange blessing that we see there. He may turn and have pity, leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Now that may not seem like much of a blessing. You say, is that, is that all I get if I return to the Lord? Just some grain, just some wine to offer to the Lord? And yet remember, these were the things required, the necessities for daily worship in the temple. They were what were needed for a relationship with God to happen on a daily basis. And God is offering himself in relationship to his people. That is what we get when we come back. The greatest thing that God can give you is himself. His own presence. A relationship with him. That's why the message in this passage, the message this morning, has not been returned to church. That's not the primary message. The call is, return to me. Return to the Lord. You know, often people say, what will other people think? What what will so-and-so think if after such a time I turn around? And yet it's a completely wrong question to ask. There may be a grumpy older brother somewhere, but that is no concern to you. It's business between you and the Lord. And it's not too late. In my own family, one of my, my grandfathers was what they used to call, and what he called himself, a, a backslider. And when he uh, led me to the Lord, I was just a very young lad, he had not long returned to the Lord. He had, in fact, spent most of his adult life, almost 40 years, wandering from God, just drifting. And he spent the last 15 years of his life in ministry. He's now with the Lord in glory. If it wasn't too late for him, it's not too late for you this morning to make a comeback after a few weeks, a month, a year, ten years. If you feel you've wasted time, don't waste any more. Return to the Lord.